Welcome to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Lyons. In this episode, we're talking about cervical cancer, but more to the point, what it's like to cope with something so personal. I mean, there's the emotional impact of diagnosis and treatment, but also the effects on intimacy and relationships. So we have a guest who's going to talk us through all of this, and she is simply one of the brightest stars in our particular part of the sky, Tamika Felder. She is a cervical cancer survivor, and she's founded an organization called Survivor with a C. It's a nonprofit that supports cervical cancer patients, survivors, and of course, their families. She's an author and a speaker who's appeared around the world to tell the story of her own cervical cancer journey and to advocate for patients who sometimes have a hard time finding their own voice. My dear friend, Tamika, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And you know, I just adore you all and everything that you all do. So thank you so much. You are just too sweet. Thank you. So let's dive right in. Your own journey with cervical cancer began at age 25. And that's young to be diagnosed. Yes. So tell us when at that point of diagnosis, what were you thinking or really what were you feeling? I mean, what was that moment like? You know, when you hear those words, you have cancer, there is nothing that can pre prepare you for it. You may hear other stories, watch movies, TV shows. There truly is nothing that prepares you for that moment. And even if, you know, whoever is giving you the news says that it was caught early or this is what we can do and you know, most people automatically think their life flashes before them. And that's, that's true for what happened to me. I really thought about at 25, all the things that I hadn't done yet that I wanted to experience. And I was scared. You, you, you know, I think back to when I was 25, I thought I was so grown and adult and, you know, all this other stuff. And when I was diagnosed, I was a scared girl, right? I was... Sure just starting my life. I was just out of college starting my career and had my whole future in front of me. And the thought of it ending for this cancer that I didn't really hear anything about, know about, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. Right. And it, it, just, it just comes at you out of nowhere, mm -hmm. of course. Um, and it's, it's probably hard to just even even though like, well, what's my first step beyond this? Because you're just numb in that moment. I right. Yeah. So I, I've read interviews where you mentioned that at following treatment that you felt really depressed, that you, 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 you know, speaking, touching on what you, what you were just speaking to, you, you, you lost some of what you thought made you a woman. It's hard to imagine anything being more intensely personal and impactful. I mean, would you just share a bit about what you went through there? Yeah, and it's and it's so interesting because during that time I didn't know I was depressed. <laughs> like I know that in, at 45, well I knew it before 45, but I didn't know it till I was through it how depressed I was. Um, and how could you not be depressed by something like that? Um, sure. But you're just kind of in it and going through the motions and trying to 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 be strong for yourself and for others. And I grew up in a household where, you know, we were taught to be strong. We were taught to, you, and I love that, but also it's okay to have a pity party and it's okay to ask for help. So for me, my cancer was, and I'm doing the air quotes, caught early and I'm happy for that, but that still meant that I had to 
lose my fertility. I had to have a radical hysterectomy at 25. I didn't have children. Um, was I in a rush to have children? No, but I never pictured my life without children. And I know now at 45, there are other ways that I can become a parent. But at 25, it was just kind of like, what was taken away from me? Who will want me? No one will want to marry me because I can't have children. And all these thoughts that, you know, some people may seem, think ridiculous, but it's just not. But I was thinking about all those things. I didn't want to die. And then it was, okay, you're going to lose your fertility because you have to have a hysterectomy. But now also to make sure that we get all the cancer, we want you to have chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And, you know, that comes with this whole thing. And I'm a proponent of chemotherapy and radiation. I'm like, burn all the cells, get them, right? And yes, there are a lot of side effects that there are wonderful people working on every day to minimize, but yes, there are side effects. But I'm like, yes, do it. But the scars that we have emotionally, but the physical scars that I wake up to every single day because of my cancer is a reminder. And, and that depression, I remember when at the hospital, they asked me if I wanted to see the social worker or be in a support group. And I was like, no, I don't need it. And, you know, yeah. I got I, I church and my family and friends and all of this, you know, now my message is if you have Jesus, that's fine, but you need Jesus and a therapist, you know, <laughs> like just, just in general in life. But you know, and that's if you believe, you know, if you're a Christian, whatever you believe in, but a therapist is, is a wonderful thing or someone sure. to talk to. But I literally look back sometimes and don't know how I made it through, right? But because the depression was so real. Yeah, and, and the thing, when I, when I hear you talk about all those various pieces, I mean, that is a load of stuff mentally, physically, emotionally to handle. And you were 25. Right. Not like you were, you know, some worldly adult who's been mm -hmm. out doing this. Now you were still young trying right. to cope with all this. And what's your reference point for even coping with all this, you know? And, uh, right. and, and you know, you, you touched on some things there. Uh, I mean, cervical and other gynecologic cancers bring up issues around shame and stigma. And it's sort of a double whammy. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, cancer just in general carries stigma. And that's even more sensitive when you're dealing with something mm -hmm. down there, you know. So what is your advice to help cope with this? You just mentioned you know, maybe getting a therapist and taking advantage of that. But I'm going to explore that a little bit with, with people who just really are just, just sort of almost paralyzed sometimes that, that, that they tell us. How, do, how should they cope with it? You know, I love this, you know, in the Someone You Love movie, when you have this quote and you, you talk about how normal it is. And if basically you've never had HPV, you know, that's the cause of most cervical cancers, then you're just not normal or whatever. Um, but when you have it, it, there's still shame, right? I've been telling my story for years. I'm God willing going to celebrate 20 years of cancer survivorship this year. I can't even fathom that. And I'm wow. so excited, sure. but just emotional and awestruck by it. But at the same time, do you know, Fred, there are still times when I'm telling my story, depending on the audience and 
even if it's virtual, the looks that I get when, you know, especially when the medical professional gives all, you know, you know, this, this is how you prevent it. And this is, yeah. you know, risk factors for it. And then I come on and share my story, but I'm that person. Right. Um, and it, and it's hard because even I doing this so much there, I still get a little, cause I'm human. I get a little tiny bit of that shame, that stigma cloud that's on me. But then I know that what I'm supposed to be doing is greater than all of that because I want to make sure that one, no one feels alone. And two, that even if they don't become a patient advocate, that they, you know, they, they need to be shame resilient for themselves just so they can move forward because it is a heavy burden to carry shame. Yeah, especially if you're just internalizing it, you're carrying it all mm -hmm. by yourself. You know, you're not taking advantage of speaking with someone or or, or getting some help. It's uh, that is that is a load, and it's a lot to ask anybody to do. Um, and and you had to do it all at 25. I just can't let go that you were so young. It's and crazy. I've met you know 23 year old 23 year olds, 24 years, and I mean you know. It, it, it is, it's very hard. And so I often empathize with them when, you know, they, they come to me and they say, you know, I'm reading emails or if it's on social media, you know, Tamika, my mom told me to be strong or my best friend told me not to cry. And I'm like, how could you not cry? Right. How could you not cry? And yeah. they mean the best, but they just cannot understand what you are experiencing, especially for people who, you know, maybe they're metastatic or reoccurrent and they've done all treatment options and there's nothing left. You know, I'm always very honest that I don't know directly what that feels like. I can empathize with it, but I don't know because I, I, I haven't experienced that. But those are things that people still have to deal with with cervical cancer, even though the public and, and even some in the oncology um, arena look at as an easier cancer, a cancer that's more treatable. But to the individual going through that, it doesn't seem that way. They're just trying to survive every single day. And, and, and it's funny because that's honestly in this pandemic, because we know cancer does not quarantine. You know, I've tried to put that mindset, even surviving this pandemic, that it's about surviving one day at a time, you know, not, you know, I'm a forward thinking person. So I like to plan for the future and all of this other stuff, but cancer reminds you that you have to take one day at a time. And I'm even putting that to, to, to use during this pandemic. Good for you. And I'm glad you mentioned HPV, the human papillomavirus. That's yeah, maybe a little background there would be in order. So yeah, so so all, virtually all cervical cancers are caused by, of course, certain high-risk types of, of HPV, the human papillomavirus. And that's a virus that virtually everybody has. I mean, pretty much if you have HPV, it just simply means you're normal, mm -hmm. you're you're human. And most cases will clear by themselves, not really cause problems, but that doesn't, it doesn't always work that way. Uh, but it's, it's really important to get that perspective across that having HPV is normal. Um, um, and that's, uh, I, you know, I, I think trying to normalize and use that kind of messaging is so and important. And I really do appreciate that about you because, I mean, I will say 
I'm giving you a hand clap. You really, really do go that extra mile to do it. And I know it's because you directly work with this community and you hear the stories. You get to see what, you know, from diagnosis to survivorship looks like. So you know that it doesn't just end when treatment is over, right? Like, you know that. Thank you. Thank you to me. Yeah, I appreciate that. Hashtag fight like a girl. Yes, absolutely. So I want to shift a bit to talk about sex and intimacy, which can mm -hmm. be an issue with any cancer diagnosis, but of course it's magnified going through treatment for gynecologic cancer. And as a bit of background, Asha did a survey relationships and almost everybody said they had problems. Uh, the majority said they experienced issues that were both physical and emotional, no surprise there. But fewer than half said they felt like they were able to have a productive conversation with their healthcare team about these problems. And of course, that's a problem. So, uh, you know, and of course, the physical side effects of treatment can sometimes simply make sex difficult or painful. And then that leads to the huge emotional aspect. I mean, all this can really impact relationships. So what words of wisdom do you have for patients and survivors as they navigate this? And let's start with maybe how they talk with your partner. So... I am a big proponent of you should have a healthy sex life post, well, prior to cancer, but also for sure post-cancer, you deserve it because you went through cancer. Um, so it doesn't matter if you have a partner or your pleasure is for yourself. You know, I was single when I first went through this. So I'm a big proponent of self-pleasure, whatever that looks like for, for you, the individual. And we know that there are, you know, cancer patients and survivors who actually don't have a vagina or an anus. And so they have to uh, reshift their whole thinking of intimacy and what's pleasurable for them. And so one of the biggest things is we know that not only are patients, you know, embarrassed to talk about it, so are doctors, and, but someone has to start that conversation. Um, a lot of times there, you have to shift your thinking, like whatever your pleasure zones and, and, and what would be the things to get you there prior to cancer, it's not going to be that way. When we talk about the new normal, and I hate that term because I'm like, mm. yes, it's new, but there's nothing normal, but I understand why it's a thing. We have to really think about that, especially when it comes to intimacy and i always say like the reason why so many people are unhappy is because they're not sexually fulfilled you know <laughs> and so that's again for you know prior to cancer and post cancer and so i really want people to think about intimacy not only as a physical act of sex but also the way that they look at themselves when they first wake up in the morning and the things that they say to themselves when they're looking in the mirror and brushing their teeth. Like, are you looking at every single scar? And I've been guilty of it. Like, who would want to see my body? I'm already overweight. I, I, I've got all these other issues. Now I have a scar from my belly button to my vaginal lips where you can see every single staple from my cancer scar. There's a line that runs down the middle and over a hundred staples that filled there. So it starts there. The next step is then finding out how to get things working again for you. And does that mean 
using toys. I know dilators are not fun, but as cervical cancer patients, we have to use our dilators. And I'm a proponent of using fun stuff. There are a lot of lot more fun stuff, but talk to your doctor first, make sure you're using the right size, all that other stuff. And we need lubrication. I mean, these are things that as you said before, we have to normalize talking about these things. You know, before I was diagnosed, did I ever think that I would be sitting here with you talking about Lou dilators, toys, and intimacy? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> and there you, you have someone that I see not only, you know, in Zoom, but in real life when the world opens, you know, face-to-face -face conversations. Yeah. But that's about removing that shame too, because sure. I want to help someone else. But the biggest thing is to say something. Your website, hands down, has the best resources in this area um, for our community. And it's important that people take the time. You know, do what I call a sexy Saturday. Go on, you know, Ash's website and look at all the resources and tools to help you because it is very frustrating and someone has to make the first step. And if your doctor hasn't done it, you have to do it. This is good. I like that sexy Saturday. How about a frisky Friday? I like that too. We can start that too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I never in a million years would have seen myself, my career path evolve the way it did. Right? I'm so I'm so grateful it did, but wow, I, I wonder how did I get here? But here yeah, I, it's like when I was here. dreaming of the things that I wanted to do when I grew up, this was not it. But okay, yeah, cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We make our plans and then life uh, blows them up and gets Absolutely. Into, there you go. Let me let me continue with one other point here. Uh uh you know, you reference like having interactions with the medical team, and you're right about something you said, you know, the lack of comfort. That's just not on the patient side completely. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of healthcare professionals aren't particularly well versed in having these conversations. They're not always comfortable. So I'm just wondering if you could maybe talk, was there something in particular that you found helpful when engaging healthcare providers who maybe weren't as responsive as you would have liked them to be? You know, how, how did you handle that aspect of it? Email, email, email. If you have your provider's email address, even if it's just the nurse. I find, and I mean, it's different everywhere. If you're maybe in a more rural place and, you know, it's just picking up the phone or whatever. But I have really found that emailing is a great way that when the doctor has time, they will take time to respond. Also, when you go to a physical appointment or a virtual appointment, have notes prepared you know, as a reminder to yourself of what you need to say. And you can always ask, um, I have these notes. There's some, I, I really want to talk about this. I'm not as comfortable. Is it okay to send it to you? Um, and either the doctor will open up the conversation so you can have it there, or they'll just say, yes, email it to me. I was so shocked when I spoke to a group of doctors in Alabama, wonderful at what they do, amazing. So I was there, this was two years ago, uh, three years ago. I was there to talk day one to the patients and they varied in ages anywhere from, you know, early forties to mid seventies. Talk to the patients. Then the next day I talked to the doctors. So the patients all were like, we're all having sex. We're all doing, and I mean, all of them, even the ones in their seventies, right? 
So then I talked to the doctors the next day and they were like, well, honestly, if I have a patient that's in their 60s or 70s, I just don't assume that they're having sex. And I'm like, why? Do you not want to have sex in your 60s and 70s? And there's research that shows that that age group is definitely having sex. And so there's a breakdown somewhere and I want the doctors to do better, but I also empower patients to step up and do what's best for their needs. You know, there's this other term, term, uh, what is it? Uh, Shared decision-making. There are always Mm -hmm. these new terms that come about. And I always say, yes, you should have shared decision-making in your health, but not just your cancer screenings, but also your sexual health, any type of health. um, It is shared decision-making. So this is where you, you definitely have to step up. And you know, I think that doctors are trying more to increase those conversations around sexuality and intimacy, but it's up to us to make sure that they actually happen, that they hear us and they follow through because there are a lot of people who are just suffering in silence and that makes me so sad. And I know because I was one of them as well. Yeah, of course. Um, I mentioned in the introduction that you're a speaker and an author. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about your book and where people can find it? Sure. My book, Seriously, What Are You Waiting For? is on Amazon, or you can go to my website, TamikaFelder.com. And it started as a love letter uh, to myself, because I believe that it's important to write yourself a love letter. If you're listening to this, I know you may think it sounds crazy, but take a moment and write yourself a love letter. I mean, it could be a love note. It doesn't have to be anything long, but just kind of something that you love about yourself, not necessarily physical, but physical is great because a lot of people struggle with that, but also the, the accomplishments that you've made or what you survived. So when I reached 13 years of survivorship, I felt like I wasn't thinking about the cancer every single day that, you know, I wasn't worried, oh, if I did this, will the cancer come back? Oh, I'm not feeling well, is the cancer back? You know, because cancer takes over you, it consumes you and it makes you very fearful. And I've never been a very fearful person, but that's what cancer did to me. So I felt like 13 years into my survivorship that, and I don't wanna say I was back, but cancer didn't have a hold on me. It wasn't controlling my life. Now, if you're listening to this and you're newly into your diagnosis, it doesn't mean that it will take you 13 years. Everybody's different. And it doesn't mean that I was sad every day leading up to those 13 years. Fred knows that, you know, I lived my life, but there were definitely things that I was worried about, right? And so I started thinking about how did I overcome cancer holding me hostage? And I thought 13 is supposed to be so unlucky. I'm lucky to have survived these 13 years. So I came up with 13 actions in the way that I live my life to um, live beyond my cancer. And so I wrote this blog post and people honestly who weren't even cancer survivors could relate to it because it's all things that, you know, are meant to help you is what I, I'm Southern from South Carolina. So I just common sense knowledge, but sometimes we need a reminder of like, you know, to just be happy or 
to take one day at a time. Or like in the movie, um, Finding Nemo, Dory says, just keep swimming. So sometimes mm -hmm. we have to just keep swimming. And so I really wrote that as a love note to myself that evolved into a love note and a form of empowerment. I use that word a lot for cancer patients because what I noticed was people survive cancer and then they're scared to live. The whole reason you survived was not just to exist, but to thrive. And that's whatever thriving looks like to you. I often say if thriving looks like being a couch potato and watching, you know, binging out on your favorite shows and movies, I'm fine with that. Just as long as you're living and living life on your terms. If you want to jump out of planes, do that. If you want to see the world, prior to cancer, I kept saying I was going to see the world. And I never had enough money, never had enough time. And I could never leave my job because there was always something going on. Mm. Cancer reminded me that life comes with an end date. And I know that that is not positive and not what people may want to hear, but it's the truth. So it means that we have to make the most with the time that we have. And so I try to make the most of the time that I have here because I know one day I won't be here. And so me doing that is making my survivorship count. And that's the work that I do through Survivor and through partners like you all, but also living my life and crossing out the things on what I used to call my bucket list. But because of my friend Erica, who died at 33 of cervical cancer, I call my living life list. And so I encourage everyone to think about their living life list. And it could be as simple as one of mine was learning how to swim. As an adult, it's hard to do, but I, I, I mean, I only got to level three and as soon as COVID's over, I'm back on it. But, you know, you, you, you have to do the things. You have to do the things. Mm. Tamika Felder, you're my hero. Unbelievable. Thank you so much for taking the time, not only to talk with us today, but everything you do. I mean, uh, you've got, I mean, you're, you're, uh, it, it, if you've got a minute, could you just tell us a, a little bit about Survivor, about your nonprofit? Yeah, so Survivor, one of the things that I noticed was patients needed to come together um, for support, right? Anyone who's looked at their infusion center and the support groups that are offered, you typically don't find a lot of other cervical cancer patients there. So that's great. That's one part of it. But then as I got more involved in a patient, the patient advocacy world, which actually makes me laugh because again, this is never something that I thought I would be doing, but now I've done all this stuff. I was like, there are amazing, there's amazing work going on, but we don't have enough patients that are telling their story and also telling it in a way that supports the research and the data. And so we do a survivor school of training where we take cervical cancer patients or survivors and we help them elevate their survivorship you know to the next level by using it specifically so if you all wanted to say let's have a lobby day or let's do this we help train them to get them on point with messaging married with their story so that we can make an even greater impact and so it's it's really about you know using your survivorship to change, to help in cervical cancer. And so we know that whatever we change, like for example, in Maryland, I helped change legislation for fertility and it may not, it's not going to help me, but it will help other 
adolescent and young adult cancer patients who were diagnosed have their fertility um, preservation covered. And so that's what, what it's about. Survivor is really about filling in cracks wherever we can. So if you call on us and you need us, we're there for you. If the National HPV Vaccination Roundtable calls on us and they need us, we'll do the work. We wanna help mobilize and move on whatever platform we are a part Link to Survivor and to Tamika's website in our show notes. Uh, so you can connect with her there. You can find her book and it's really worth your while. So check it all out. Tamika, thank you again so much. I can't, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed listening to you. And I really appreciate you for taking some time to visit with us this morning. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks to everybody who downloads or streams this episode. You can always connect with us online at AshaSexualHealth.org and follow us on Twitter at InfoAsha. And we'll talk to you soon.